Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, welcome. So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Stephen Hawley. He's the author of the book, Cracked, The Future of Dams in a Hot, Chaotic World. This book is brought to you by Patagonia, and it's incredible, like every bit of work Patagonia does. Uh, amazing photos, um, and the book itself is just so well-written and is so information-rich. A lot of times when I do these podcasts, I always learn something. But it's rare that I learned so much in the pre-podcast actual interview portion. In this instance, I did. So the main thing I learned was that dams are actually not climate-friendly at all. I'll let Stephen explain it because he'll explain it a lot better than me. But he talks to me about dams and about their impact on climate change, about how they're actually a major source of methane, and how, which is one of the most potent greenhouse gases, and how in turn climate change actually has an impact on dams. So it's this vicious cycle that we're seeing um, in, in relatively new research that he's been uncovering. He talks to me about other issues with dams, right? And how dams impact on their ecosystem and the migratory pattern of particular atoms, animals, in particular salmon which in turn can feed forests, right? If, if they're allowed to go to the, to the oceans and come back to their spawning locations, they can actually feed the forest with their nutrients. That's not happening, especially when you have these massive 40, 100, 200 foot dams in their way. So these huge dams. Um, and then also just how dams became hugely popular and profitable for a select few to begin with. The history of dams, how they were built on slave labor and racial discrimination. I mean, it's really an incredible book. And I like to think this podcast episode did a really good job of conveying at least some of the top parts um, of the book. I would still recommend it you all to read it because, again, it is incredible. But uh, you know, I wanted to talk about the key parts here. And so Stephen actually really focuses on the West Coast with this book. There's a couple chapters about the East Coast, but he mentioned that there's a lot of opportunity for dam removal in the East Coast, primarily because there are so many dams in, in the East Coast. And one of the things he did was we started talking, and I think he was really interested that I was in North Carolina. That's where I'm located. And he tasked me with trying to find the top five dams that should be removed, the ones that should be removed first and foremost admittedly, that ain't easy. There are tons of dams. There's like 70,000 dams in the U.S. alone, over three feet tall. And there are about 1,600 dams in North Carolina. So it's really hard to name uh, the top five that, that are the biggest issues. But the ones that keep coming up for me are Fontana Dam, which is the highest dam east of the Rocky Mountains. The Lake James Dams uh, Dam, also called Kawaba Dam. The Lake Waccamaw Dam. The Chattoogee Dam, I'm probably mispronouncing all of these, but the Walters Dam, I'm not mispronouncing that one, that's on the Pigeon River. So this, these are the dams I keep hearing a lot about. But again, when we talk, he mentions that there's really no use for 
a huge percentage of dams that are in the United States. A lot of them have been decommissioned, as in they're not providing power anymore. A lot of them never provided power to begin with. They were actually dams just for transportation, which are no longer needed anymore. And it's really difficult to get these dams taken down. There's a lot of money required, and there's a very, very long bureaucratic process that a lot of people are just fighting for the sake of it, it feels like. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast episode. Uh, Again, uh, Stephen was just incredibly captivating when he talks um and again it was about a subject i I like to think i don't like to but i feel like i'm a newbie in in really all these subjects after i talk to these uh, experts but dams were something that i really knew nothing about other than some a little bit about migratory patterns uh, of salmon and how those are being impacted but nothing about their climate impacts nothing about the racial discrimination and the slave labor they were built using And nothing about this huge effort that Steve and a lot of other really um, important people are working to make sure that they are not only decommissioned, but completely removed. We've got a lot of other opportunities for um, power that aren't really just, you know, almost a front for some of these large power companies. So he gets into it. He talks about it a lot, um, both in the book and the podcast. And there's a lot of movies uh, about this as well. Um, that I'd recommend to watch. But I hope you enjoy this podcast episode. If so, please like, rate, review, and subscribe. That all helps a lot. Thanks. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I really appreciate your time. And I want to say I'm holding your book right here, Cracked, The Future of Dams in a Hot, Chaotic World. I can't tell you how little I knew about dams before I picked up your book. It is, there's so much going on that I had no idea about that I'm going to be, I'm going to ask you about, but I just, I really didn't know. I kind of like to think of myself as being somewhat informed on a lot of these issues. I couldn't have been more off on a lot of these. So it blew my mind. Your book is incredibly exhaustive, incredibly uh, thorough, incredibly nuanced on, on this entire topic. Uh, and I wanted to thank you for writing it and for hopping on and talking with me and, and, and you know, illuminating me to this incredibly rich and nuanced topic. Well, Brian, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, always happy to, to talk about the subjects. I spent a, obviously a fair amount of time getting to know more about it. So, uh, Let's talk dams. <laughs> Let's talk dams. So I'm, I'm always curious. Again, I've got a million questions for you, but like, how did you get involved in dams and in particular that where you are now with dam removal like that? That's always curious to me. Sure. I think it is kind of a case of reverse engineering. Um, I, one of my dear friends that I grew up with was a massive fly fishing nerd and introduced me to the world of steelhead fishing uh on you know fly fishing for steelhead um and really just kind of experiencing the the joys of a river that hasn't been mm-hmm. plugged for you know to to sort of serve a more industrial or technological purpose and um as i started freelance writing i i found myself drawn to this topic and i guess what really shifted for me was in the late 90s there was a group of commercial fishermen out on the Oregon coast um and actually in northern california too they were led by a guy named nat bingham um really smart dude um and he started organizing commercial fishermen and saying hey look if we really want to 
start protecting our livelihoods, we need to start the, the biggest take in the whole system of salmon and steelhead on the West Coast is not us or any other fishermen, it's these dams. And at the time I was writing for a, a, a sort of trade publication that uh, was aimed at commercial fishermen. And so it was really interesting to see these sort of blue collar, you know, pretty rough and tumble guys getting involved uh, at the watershed scale and talking about removing dams so that they could continue to be out on the ocean, you know, fishing uh, for, for salmon. Yeah. Yeah. You've talked to, in your book, you talk about like the, the importance of door to door diplomacy and going around mm -hmm. and like, uh, you know, shaking hands and kind of getting to know people on both sides of the aisle. And what I've liked, like throughout the whole course of the book, I was, I could see the appeal, right? Obviously, like we're going to talk about the, the issue with dams, but I could see the appeal because it's almost immediate. You can see results when a dam is removed, right? It's not a lot of things where yeah. with conservation or with nature, it, it will take forever. Like this, you can see nature come back really, really quickly right after a removal. Sure, I think, and I think that's a really important point because we definitely live in an age where most of us live in urban or suburban settings, and we're pretty well cut off from nature. And and when you, that's just the way we live. And one of the consequences of that is you lose faith in the ability of nature to do all the things that it's always done. And I think anybody who's been lucky enough to witness the recovery of a river ecosystem after a dam comes out will have that sort of faith in nature pretty quickly restored uh, i can think of an example you know uh a stone's throw from where i live where condit dam on the white salmon river came out in 2011 and uh in 2012 almost a year to the day after this dam came out there were wild fall chinook salmon spawning literally right over the site where the dam had been the year before you know so um and then you go to that place now you know a dozen years after the fact and you you wouldn't even recognize that there was ever a dam there the riparian area has grown up there's 30 foot tall alder trees there's you know woody debris in the channel there's there's trout in the stream there's you know deer and elk and coyotes migrating along the river corridors it's it's a pretty incredible scene that is yeah that is incredible that's got to be awesome for you to to witness in just a, a you know a few short years so one one of the things the first thing that struck me about like about your book crack was i always thought dams were environmentally friendly but they're not mm -hmm. can you talk about that about how they're not clean energy and what the, you know, obviously we know the alternatives, but like how that narrative became that they are clean energy. Sure. So here's two major reasons why dams are not clean energy. One is that they destroy habitat in the place where they're built. So when you build a dam, all of the habitat, not only where the concrete is poured, but where the reservoir is formed, all that habitat is completely altered and so the creatures that relied on that space before the dam was built are are gone and, and you know uh ecology being what it is of course there's other things that move in but those aren't necessarily the things that belong there 
And then the other consequence of dam removal is that when there are migratory species that rely on a river corridor to move sometimes very long distances up and down uh, a, a river system, they can no longer do that. And so in the case of Pacific salmon, that's what you see. Um, there used to be sockeye salmon that swam almost a thousand miles from Astoria, where the Columbia go, runs into the Pacific, all the way up to the Continental Divide in Idaho, 900 some odd miles. And they, a few of them in odd years still make that journey, but they can't do that anymore because there's eight giant dams in the way. So you lose the habitat where the dam is built and then you lose the corridor that, you know, these critters rely on to move up and down the river system. The third thing that I talk about in the book that's relatively new is that dams are a major source of methane mm -hmm. and methane is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas. So um, this whole idea that dams are clean, green energy is really a myth that's been promoted by the hydro industry on the East Coast, particularly Hydro-Quebec in Canada has been a big mm. promoter of this idea. And out here on the West Coast, it's been, you know, major corporate utilities along with a couple, oddly enough, federal agencies, the Bonneville Power Administration and the Bureau of Reclamation and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They all promote this idea that uh, dams are doing the world a big favor when, in fact, they're not. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk to you specifically about Bonneville. Like, as, as, as I told you, I learned so much about dams, but I learned so much about Bonneville too. Um, but yes, I mean, so my last episode of the podcast, I spoke with a friend of mine, um, he's the founder of carbon off. His name is Chris Yoko. Um, and he actually worked, one of the projects he works with is actually with like these large bogs that, um, emit tons of methane and it's exactly what this dam is, right? It's, it's silt. It's all sorts of organic mm -hmm. debris, debris that gets caught right. in the, in the dam, uh, in, in the actual reservoir. And it starts to admit methane, which is a huge, I mean, it's like 20 to 30 times yeah. stronger of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So that's, that was incredible for me to hear. Um, it really just was the biggest blow that I felt like needed to the hydroelectric power industry of, of you know, something huge to uncover that I don't think a lot of people knew before this. Sure. You know, and I think I mentioned this in the book that, um, actually, uh, this researcher, oddly enough, works in an office about uh, a mile from where I'm sitting right now. His name is John Harrison. He's part of a team of, of academics that has been researching methane emissions from reservoirs. And they just, I think two summers ago, they updated their uh, the, the big paper that they had published in 2018 or 19. And they basically estimated that uh, the world's reservoirs are the sixth largest emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet. So this is that means that our the dams on our planet have a greenhouse gas footprint equivalent to the nation of Germany. Uh, again, Germany is the sixth largest emitter of, of greenhouse gases on the planet. So this isn't clean green energy at all. And I think one of the points I try to make in the book is that in an era of climate change, the uh, 
negative effects of dams are only going to accelerate. Yep. Yeah, that was exactly my second question was that like, obviously, we're talking right now about how dams are exacerbating climate change. But the inverse is also a, a huge effect, right? Climate change is making dams right. just less, a lot less efficient. In some instances, not even generating power. Sure. I mean, let's, let's, let's take a look. We were talking before we went on air about uh, what's happening on the Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've all seen pictures in the Washington post and the New York times of the bathtub ring or Lake Powell and at Lake Mead. Um, the standard calculation that was made when those dams were built is like, okay, you lose 10% of the volume of the reservoir every year to evaporation. Well, research uh, that's done been done primarily by some folks at the University of Colorado Boulder, um, they're estimating based on more recent research and, and better equipment to do that research that it's about twice that. So you're losing... In, in an era of climate change, 20% of the volume of these giant reservoirs out in the desert in, in Utah and Nevada. And this starts to become an untenable proposition. You know, for instance, if you, if you look at what's happening at Lake Powell, that reservoir has gotten low enough that pretty soon they won't be able to generate hydropower anymore. And then in the next five to 10 years, as the reservoir drops lower, this is really a nightmare scenario that I describe in the book where there won't be an outlet for the Colorado River to move downstream from Lake Powell. Because when they designed that dam, they never foresaw a scenario where climate change would be, you know, an effect. And they never thought that the level of the reservoir would drop that low. So between where the water spills down into the turbines to generate electricity and the outlet works some 90 feet below that, there's no way for the Colorado River to to flow downstream. So think about this. There's 30 million people that rely on the Colorado River downstream of Lake Powell. And we're on the cusp of a scenario where the river could well run dry because the engineers who designed those dams didn't think about what might happen if the planet warms slightly? Uh, th- there's no way for the river to flow. So this is a, this is a sort of science fiction type scenario. Yeah, it's wild when you think about the reciprocal relationship between climate change and dams. Things I'd never thought of mm-hmm. before, right? You do hear about, like, I've definitely heard of the depletion of the reservoir itself. You hear about like how California sometimes is trying to store water underground or, or the black balls that, that they would dump into certain, certain yeah. dams to try and reflect yeah. sunlight or absorb sunlight, whichever one of this, right. but just to make sure. But I never heard of the, the opposite happening, um, being a big methane emitter. Um, right. Which is, yeah, you're right. It's like, it's terrible when you think about how related they are. Well, I think one of the things that I was maybe uh, a little more subtle about in the book and maybe I wish I hadn't have been so subtle is that you know particularly in the American West these river systems evolved over hundreds of thousands of years and and the sort of flora and fauna and the and actually the, the human societies that evolved along those corridors 
um, because of the long uh, stretch of time, accrued a certain amount of their own kind of wisdom, right? And um, we've created a world where we've kind of, in the process of altering the physical landscape, have also done away with a lot of that wisdom, right? Hmm. I mean, salmon are creatures that uh, whose genes are exquisitely adopted to the very uh, localized range where they spawn and reproduce, right? The genes of a Klamath River salmon are different than the genes of an Umpqua River salmon. And, th and that's, uh, you know, evolutionary intelligence that we've kind of set aside. Um, I'm not so sure that things would have been, you know, actually Canada did this. They eschewed a program of massive dam building because they had biologists that they trusted who said, "Don't do this. It's not worth the. <laughs> it's not worth the cost." So you know, this isn't some sort of pie in the sky idea. It's just that here in the United States, we didn't heed the advice of the biologists that were saying, "Don't do this," and we went ahead and did it. And now we're kind of living with the consequences of that. Interesting. And uh, I the one of the main points of the book is that the consequences are just going to become more severe. Uh, certainly as certain parties insist on maintaining the status quo. So, yeah. When, when was that, that um, Canada? Well, Roderick Haig Brown um, in the 1930s wrote a report for the Canadian government that basically said, don't do what the United States is thinking about doing. Wow. It it's, uh, you know, not worth the price of admission, more or less, wow. is what he said. That's some great foresight. And they, they he, you know, Roderick Haig Brown was uh, one of these rare critters. That he was a very good scientist, but he was an even, even better writer. And so the reports that he wrote garnered some attention because they weren't uh, written in uh, the vernacular of science. They were written right. as somebody who cared about the landscape and wanted it to continue on in, in the form that he had, you know, studied it and witnessed it. And, uh, you know, the U.S. would have benefited greatly if they had, had come up with a, an American equivalent of, of, of Roderick Haig Brown. Yeah, that's interesting. In the beginning of the book, you talk about kind of the inception of a lot of the dam projects throughout the U.S. Um, and how, well, at the very least, like a lot of, you know, indigenous people and cultures were against these dams, right? Because it was on their land. You go on to right. talk about uh, uh, kind of like this eminent domain where uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers kind of took over a lot of this land. That was another thing yeah. I kind of felt like I had an understanding of, but you really brought it to life with, again, with like the, the first half of your book. Um, but something I didn't know was, was just dams' integral relationship with immigration and how the way that the towns were developed around dams and the way that the workforces around dams was very racial and intentionally uh, divisive amongst classes. Sure. Well, I mean, this is, this is the problem you have in a society where you trust all of your wisdom to engineers, right? Um, I got nothing against engineers, but they don't, they don't hold the keys to the kingdom. And one of the things they did in the American West is they put, a couple million acres of irrigate, irrigated agriculture into production with absolutely nothing in the way of 
forethought about the kind of labor force that would be needed to operate agriculture on that scale. So, you know, the United States during the Second World War started something called the Braceros program, where they invited workers from Mexico and Latin America to come and work fields that were newly irrigated under a lot of these projects. Um, that, to make a very long story short, that Braceros program was um, fraught with abuse. And there, are, I my understanding is there are still lawsuits that are working, that went, wending their way through the courts because there were workers who weren't paid, workers who weren't housed, workers uh, whose families suffered. And then to add insult to injury, the United States ended up deporting a lot of these people that they had invited to come to the country and work here. So a lot of the racial animus that we have along the border right now doesn't recognize the fact that irrigated agriculture was the absolute premise for inviting wage slaves, is what I would call them, into the United States to work this new, you know, agricultural paradise that uh, the engineers had sold to the American public. You know, the in the book, I talk about the sort of um, descendant of the Braceros program is a visa program that invites guest workers here and how during the pandemic um, in the state of Washington, where I'm sitting right now, there were just blatant abuses of that visa program, workers whose lives and whose health care was just kind of glossed over uh, in the name of keeping the <laughs> keeping the machine running, you know. So uh, not much. We, we think about the past as something that, you know, is a, a long way in the rearview mirror, but um, one of the things that struck me as I was researching those stories is that this is really sort of a repeat of, of things that happened in previous generations, you know, well, previous generation. So, um, that I, I think the something that, I, <clears throat> that I hope comes out in the book is just sort of the dehumanizing aspect of a, a lot of these systems that are based on storing water. And, um, you know, whether or not a lot of these dams come out, one of the things that we definitely need to address is how th that system has impoverished a lot of people who are doing heroic work and putting food on the tables of everybody, <laughs> you know, a lot of people in the United States, and they're not being fairly treated for the work that they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think you did an incredible job of illustrating that as well like you you open up a a chapter talking about how uh you know a member of a native tribe was sitting on land that used to be hers and used to be her ancestors and she would wake up on the banks mm -hmm. of the river and, and was able to paddle as far you know to kayak as far as she could and would always yeah. uh, be able to eat uh fresh salmon and then it became like a um you know it was taken over by the u.s army corps of engineers and was like turned into a day camping site. Right. And it's completely manicured, completely yeah, different. Yeah, you're, you're talking about Harry Chapman Nightwalker Schuster. Yeah. Who's, uh, she was the woman whose 
uh, land was buried behind Ice Harbor Dam on the Snake River. And, you know, that's, that's an especially tragic story because her, uh, her people, the Palouse, were driven off their land in the 19th century. And then, you know, some of her relatives bought uh, riverfront property and were sort of subsisting on the land that they owned. And then for the second time, a hundred years later, they were, uh, you know, that land was taken away from them again, even though they held title to it. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's kind of the logic of this system is that uh, it's pitched to us as, well, this is a rising tide that's going to float all boats. But, you know, <laughs> a lot of those boats, unfortunately, were sunk before, you know, uh, before the reservoirs were even full. Yeah. And houses and homelands and, and burial grounds were flooded as a result. Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely want to go into how people think about dams and, and how that's been construed now. Um, but one more thing I didn't know, again, there was a million things I didn't know was just the, the cost of a dam to the taxpayer and then the cost of a salmon as a result of there being fewer salmon. Right. We're going to talk all, I mean, you know, the salmon fisheries and everything, but that, right. that blew me well, away too. When we start talking about this, one of the things that we need to recognize is that salmon used to be free, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right. You know, and now they cost money because they're raised in a hatchery. And one of the things that's incredible to me, I'm, I'm, uh, working with a small nonprofit right now that's trying to, uh, fix some problems with the dam on the Deschutes River in Central Oregon. And the utility that owns those dams spent $140 million on this state-of-the-art fish passage system 15 years ago. And in those 15 years, uh, that system, you know, which again was celebrated as like, this is how we're going to have dams and salmon too, which is a standard line that you hear from utilities all over the country yeah. is we we can mm -hmm. have our cake and eat it too we can have our salmon and and have dams too and um in the 15 years that this 140 million dollar fish passage system has been in operation there's been 680 some odd fish that have come back in 15 years so i'm not an economist but if you take that 140 million dollars and amortize it over the 15 years that project has been in operation and then take the 50 or so fish that have come back every year uh these have got to be some of the most expensive yeah. fish on the planet you know i mean <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's crazy and it's also crazy that utilities expect that their ratepayers absorb the cost of this kind of shenanigan right i mean um 140 million bucks that probably could have been better spent doing something else other than trying to paint lipstick on a pig you know trying to make a dam that has blocked fish passage for 50 years look like it's not doing that but that's exactly what it's doing you know yeah and what so, was the what was the return rate before that like i know it's tough to say how many but like how many salmon in well, the how, absence how, of that, that that's always the question. Like, yeah. how far back do you want to go? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, those 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 three dams on that river extirpated salmon and steelhead from most of central and eastern Oregon. 
So we're talking thousands and thousands of fish over thousands and thousands of years. And this is just what I was talking about earlier. There was a whole culture, human culture, a whole biology, a whole ecology that was erased when those dams went in. Yeah. And the full sort of cost accounting of that loss has never been calculated. It can't be at this point because it wasn't, there was no inventory taken before the dams mm. were built, you know? So it's kind of, dams are interesting that way. They're, they kind of work as a sort of memory, a collective memory erasure device, right? Yeah. You, you can't remember what was there before. So it's another case of this sort of shifting baseline syndrome where, well, this is the world we have and it seems like impoverished and uh, imperiled, but there isn't enough collective memory to say that, all right, you know, fish used to swim a thousand miles up the Columbia and, and sock those, those fish sockeye salmon would spawn in, Redfish Lake and Pettit Lakes up in, you know, the spine of the continent. And there's not enough collective memory to say that there used to be this gem of a marine ecosystem that stretched all the way from the continental divide to the continental shelf. And I guess that's one of the reasons I felt like I needed to write this book is that that the we've forgotten that. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't so long ago that that was. Uh, our reality, you know, in this part of the world, that was how people, you know, they use the river not only as a means of transportation, but salmon trading was coin of the realm. You know, there were amazing, amazing artifacts that were uh, traded to the tribes on the lower Columbia as a result of their salmon trading. And this is in a Vine Deloria book. Uh, Vine Deloria is a Native American scholar, and yeah, he died uh, a few years back. But he talks about this coin that was in the possession of the Nez Perce tribe, I think, through Chief Joseph. And it was a coin from Egypt, from the Nile, that somehow made its way into the hands yeah. of salmon traders at Salilo Falls on the Columbia at some point. You know, That's so. <laughs> It really, the the Columbia River and Salilo Falls in particular was in a massively cosmopolitan place. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it was the center of a lot of Pacific trade for centuries and centuries. And, you know, we don't remember those things. Yeah. And uh, maybe we should. I for sure think we should. And I think your book does a great job of illustrating the before. And I think what also can help illustrate the before is seeing more dams be removed and see how quickly it can return to the before like i've always said a yeah. million times like it's it's not a nat natural issue it's a it's a human issue if we just get out of yeah. the way of nature even just for a year you can see remarkable yeah. changes yes hey yeah. um let's talk about your part of the world i want to i want to get to some east coast questions some north carolina questions okay think, uh, yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So for sure. I mean, I was the last thing that I was that I learned was just about like orcas and how orcas and salmon, uh, the relationship between yeah. that. That was incredible. Um, but yeah, just learned so much. And yeah. So a lot of the book does focus on the West Coast because there are just so many. I feel like there's some such a rich natural life there. 
but yeah, I, I was yeah, curious I, about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just gonna say, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a provincial guy, and I tend to write about <laughs> things that I know, and the things that I know are all here. But that's that's why I wanted to 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 try to uh, make you know. I know you're based in North Carolina and, and we can talk a little bit about what's happening there, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. No, no, that's totally fine. Like that. Yeah. That was one of my questions I had was to talk through that. Like what, what do people do? I want to talk about like how people can find dams in their area and how they can kind of um, join the fight against them. Right. Like kind of work to, to decommission and remove them. Well, if you're a, if you're interested in dam removal, the cool thing about living on the East Coast is that is uh, dam removal central right now. Really, for the simple reason that <laughs> um, a lot of the East Coast was uh, being developed by you know European civilization at a time when grist mills and and uh, later on some of the early hydroelectric dams were being built and they're they're all a lot of them thousands of them are abandoned now yeah and so what's happening is that there's uh there's no disagreement that a lot of these old dams that are you know uh 17th 18th 19th century some of them early 20th century that they need to come out and that so the only thing that's standing in the way of them being removed is money and the bureaucratic process of acquiring all the permits to get them to come out. And there's a chapter in my book called Dam Removal 101. Yeah, that's a great one. And it just basically provides a blueprint, a rough, albeit a rough blueprint of the steps that anybody needs to do to, to get rid of an unwanted dam in their neighborhood. And uh, I, it's a chapter specifically aimed at the East Coast because there's so much of that work that needs to be done. Um, I, I unfortunately did not get a chance to uh, check out too much of the dam removal scene in North Carolina, but I'm sure that there are <laughs> hundreds of dams that were built you know, back in the day there that need to come out. And um, in the book, I talked about what's happening in New Jersey. Um, and most people, a lot of your listeners may not realize this, but New Jersey has actually really strong environmental laws. And because of fines levied against polluters, there's a pretty good uh, slush fund of money to get old dams taken out. And one of the interesting things about this is that, um, and I've pitched this story to a couple of magazine editors, no, no bites yet, but you could fly into JFK with a three or four weight fly rod and using nothing more than, you know, that, that, that rod and uh, a taxi, there's some pretty decent trout fishing within two. Uh, yeah. Okay. I tried to make it within 90 minutes, but maybe it's more like two hours. You, so you could stay in a hotel in Manhattan and trout fish around some of these streams <laughs> that have been restored in, in New Jersey and in New York. And probably have a pretty fun trout fishing trip and still, you know, <laughs> yeah, see the city live too. high on the hog. And you could be an urban trout fisherman, I guess, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's, uh, yeah, that's something that I, I didn't yeah. know. And also, I know you talked about, you know, you talk about dams in Maine and dams in the Northeast. 
a little bit too. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any hope of the Atlantic salmon returning to the numbers that there were? Yeah, man. Atlantic salmon are tough. Uh, There's a biologist in Maine that I know named Nate Gray. And he seems to think that Atlantic salmon are kind of the last frontier. Um, They've, you know, I'm not sure if this is true, but I'll just throw it out anyway. Hmm. That I feel like sometimes ecosystems have to recover from the base up. And in the book, I talk about the recovery of river herring or what used to be called alewives, which is like the worst name for anything, let alone a fish, you know. So they they don't call them alewives anymore, which is a good thing. They call them river herring. And when they started taking out dams in Maine, there was a recovery of, of rivers in the broadly in the Gulf of Maine that took river herring from just maybe a few thousand fish to now there's more than 5 million every year. Hey, sorry, my dog's growling. You're good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, now there's 5 million of those fish every year. And that's a result of dam removal. There's there's no other, it's not anything else. There's no been no program within the state of Maine or any place else that said we're going to, we're going to create, hatcheries and fish passage systems to to no they didn't do that they just took out dams and so from that baseline you start to see recovery of other species like short nosed sturgeon um like uh uh striped bass and i think atlantic salmon have been so beleaguered over the centuries that uh, they're going to be the last to come back. But I think the takeaway from that story, and I think the thing that we really need to be upbeat about is um, there's the possi- there's a greater, much greater possibility that Atlantic salmon are c- going to come back to the Kennebec system and the Penobscot system in Maine uh, because those rivers are now free flowing, you know, and, uh, a friend of mine has said it best. He's a documentary filmmaker. That the best hatchery system is a healthy river. You yeah. know, I mean, if you if you want hatcheries that produce fish, then don't have hatcheries. Have have healthy rivers. You know. Yeah. So. So, let's talk about what's like standing in your way. Obviously, there's tons of bureaucracy, but there's a lot of these yeah. dams that you talked about are are decommissioned, right? Some of them were just for transportation and they're not developing power at all or, or anymore. But like, what, what is, what is other than like, what forces other than bureaucracy and paperwork is standing in the way of dam removing? On, on the East coast, it's, it's funding, it's the money okay. and, and, and it's the bureaucracy. It's just having a critical mass of citizens in any given neighborhood watershed or, 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 you know, it can be bigger than a neighborhood watershed for sure. They're willing to come together and say, we want this to change, you know? Um, I, I think um, it would be an amazing accomplishment if there was some sort of uh, national fund for dam removal that was maybe carved out of a, you could have a, minute tiny tax on hydropower nationally like a you know tenths of a penny per kilowatt hour 
and you wouldn't notice it on your power bill. And then all of a sudden there would be all this money to take out that would be great. Uh, obsolete dams, you know, and, and, and maybe that's not the way it happens, but however it happens, it's, it's, it's really, I think the biggest obstacle at this point is just the money. I know there are people in every, you know, uh, place on the East and West coast and in the middle of the country too, that want their waterways to be, healthier so that's that's not at the issue it's just can we get the funding to to make this happen you know do you find there's more momentum on the west coast than on the east coast or is it kind of shared like how how are people taking to this well the east coast the east coast is really different um again because they have an extra century or two of uh early industrial age development and there's just a, was a lot more dam building that happened you know in the book i talk about there were laws in the 17th century in in new jersey that said that you couldn't block passage for for fish in a given waterway well, that was really it's an interesting law because it was thoroughly ignored right <laughs> hmm. even back then yeah they, they didn't pay much attention to, and and so even back then, there was this idea that you needed to balance, you know, the needs of of uh, humankind with the needs of of the system that had evolved there for thousands of years. And um, we went the other way, you know, we, and so now we're trying to put some of that back into balance. And um, if if that work continues and accelerates that. Um, you know, the, the results are so inspiring that if people sort of continue to pursue the things that they're pursuing, but then, you know, exponentially accelerate the effort that uh, some really good things could happen, not just on the East Coast, but all over the country. Um, you know, it's really inspiring to watch a stream that was more or less an industrial, you know, sewer uh have trout in it uh a couple of years after a dam comes out that's pretty cool yeah you know kids kids like it grandparents like it dogs like it yeah um it's 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 an incredible thing and again i just would reiterate and in, in an era where we all live in most of us anyway live in urban and suburban environments and are not connected with wild nature on a daily basis on the East Coast, particularly, even in the middle of what looks like fairly civilized territory, you can have these little wild ribbons of, you know, uh, free flowing water that that provide people with that kind of connection. Yeah, I mean, I love that. Like, how how can someone find the problem dams in their area? I guess. Wow, that's a good question. Uh, nobody's ever asked me that before. Huh. Like, is there a um, repository online or something for that? There is a, well, yeah, there's not really a, a repository of problem dams. Um, the USGS uh, keeps a database of dam removals, but um, I don't know of a, of anybody that's keeping track of problem dams i would say this if you if you live 
if if there's a stream in your neighborhood that's not that, that it you love it and it seems like it could be better um i would suggest looking at a map and figuring out what is keeping it from being better and on the east coast particularly the best guess for why that waterway isn't looking the way that you want it to is because there's an old dam on it i was going to say chances yeah. are that it's going to be a it's going to be some sort of damming uh with it yeah. on that waterway on the east coast and it yeah. sounds like even on the west coast like like it's you're oh, yeah. hard pressed to find a waterway that isn't dammed in some way shape or form yeah in the book i outline uh you know that obviously dam removal is uh, gets the most attention when we're taking out big dams like we are right now on the Klamath River in Northern California. But of course, um, the, um, the perhaps the bigger problem is smaller dams. So there's been an inventory of dams 15 feet or taller. And I think the that inventory... Uh, tells us that there's 90,000 dams 15 feet or taller on the American landscape. And But get this, dams that are smaller than that, there may be more than a million of them. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So that inventory hasn't been done. You know, and the thing is, if you're a tiny juvenile fish of whatever variety and there's a just a two-foot-tall diversion dam in your way that's like a mountain range for yep. a fish that small yeah because it's nothing for, so, for salmon yeah but yeah, yeah. interesting so. yeah that's a great point i, I saw the figure ninety thousand, but i didn't think of anything below the 15 foot range like yeah. it's got to be that much more yeah um so how, how would you incentivize dam removal for people who aren't entirely bought in, right? For people who are like, let's say you're someone who still believes that dams are, are uh, environmentally friendly, or let's say you're far on the opposite side where you're pro-dam, you realize all the issues with them, but you're still pro-dam. Like how, how can we incentivize dam removal to get people to buy in yeah. or against it? That's a good question. I, th I think, um, you know, I'm not an economist, but there is a general principle in economics that goes you incentivize the behaviors that you want to reward and you uh, tax the behaviors that you want to uh, people to develop an allergy to. And so I think, you know, uh, as far as small dam removal goes, as I mentioned before, it would be really fantastic if there was a pot of money yeah. uh, nationally, or at least I know some states, particularly Pennsylvania, have done a great job of, of creating money to remove old dams. What would be really great if there was a national program to do that, you know, and um, I, I'd leave it up to the uh, people with a better economic mind than I have to figure out how to how to finance that but um you know right now hydropower doesn't really pay its freight yeah you know it's, it's heavily subsidized even if it's a private corporation that owns the dam uh and they're even more heavily subsidized if they're run by you know the cadre of federal agencies that owns and operates 
dams in this country. They, they should be made to pay their own way. You know, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, everything from the uh, complex issues around migrant labor to massive amounts of ecological damage. Um, they have, they have, they're not responsible for any of that. They just, you know, yeah. get their appropriations from Congress or in the case of Bonneville, sell power to their constituents in the region and go on their merry way. But they have not been forced to address or even begin to clean up the ecological mess that they're responsible for. And that needs to change, you know. Are there are there any politicians you do mention in the book, but like are there any politicians that are leading the way? Are there any that that are not holding well, the shit? Like Yeah, in my part of the world, Mike Simpson from Idaho, yeah. who quite crazily is a staunch Republican, but remembers growing up in Idaho when there were salmon in his state. He tried, but you know, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say this. This is how bizarre politics are in our country right now. Mike Simpson, the conservative Republican from Idaho, got bitch slapped by liberal Democrats in Washington state. And the reason that that happened was that Washington state gets almost all of the irrigation benefits and the lion's share of the power benefits from dams on the Columbia. Oh, wow. And so you had this rebel senator, or I'm sorry, Congressman Mike Simpson from the state of Idaho, who is trying to do the right thing. And uh, the, the headline <laughs> that will never be written is that his efforts were canceled, canceled out by liberal Democrats in from Seattle. You know, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, the first yeah. people who'll tell you they're environmentally conscious, uh, uh, right? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. That, yeah. yeah, that's so, super frustrating. And yeah, I, I, I'm yeah. always protective over uh, my conservative friends that are also very environmentally conscious because I don't feel right. like that is, uh, at least I don't hear about that as often as I hear about the other side. So, um, yeah, that's a real, yeah. that's a huge shame. Yeah. Um. What are there, are there any dams that are beneficial? Like, I think the argument of clean energy is gone. I think there's a tipping point. Yeah, I, I don't, in, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Um, you know, Grand Coulee Dam in Eastern Washington is the biggest hydropower project uh, in the country. I believe that's still true. And Okay, it provides a pile of electricity for sure. Um, however, it cut off uh, the upper third of the Columbia Basin from salmon migration. So, you know, we have to start thinking of energy as more than just electricity, right? Uh, biological energy in the form of salmon running up and down a Pacific yeah. uh, uh Pacific Coast watershed was for many centuries its own kind of energy, spiritually, economically, socially, and we we lost that. And now all we have is the economic side of it. You know, the the that dam sells probably a 
roughly a billion dollars of electricity every year from the power it produces. All right, that's cool. But, um, you know, what did we lose in the name of, of uh, providing power? And yeah. then in the name of providing power, did we really do justice to all the people that were promised justice, right? And I think the case can be made, and I think I tried to make this case in the book, that, that, that those promises have never been fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and it sounds like, you know, you've got some dams that are probably, it's going to take a while for them to be removed. It sounds like there's a lot of momentum with these lower snake river dams. We're talking about right. Bonneville power association. Again, I learned a lot about that, but like you mentioned, there's, they're so ill conceived. They're like the worst of, um, uh, corporate greed and also governmental overreach and, <laughs> And, uh, you know, like, yes. like just the worst of both worlds, they can claim that they're a federal agency when they need to, and they can claim to be, you know, more of a corporate, uh, right. a, who doesn't really care. A corporation doesn't really care when they, when they need to, right. they only generate 4% of the power in that region. Uh, they're not used for irrigation anymore. They were for, used for transportation, but trains are much better for that now. Like these feel like yeah. they're the first well, ones to I, fall I, the know, dominoes. I think here's the crux of the issue for people that don't live in the Pacific Northwest is it's really a collision of two different ideologies. One is that the uh, four and a half million acres of wilderness was set aside in central Idaho, eastern Washington and eastern Oregon. And Senator Frank Church, there, this is not fiction. There was a time when there was a Democratic senator from the state of Idaho. And Senator Frank Church set a big portion of that wilderness aside. And when he wrote the bill, he said, we need to preserve habitat for salmon. This is basically the genetic breadbasket of this species, which is you know, for which the entire Pacific Northwest is known. And he was successful in that endeavor. But at the same time, you had these rogue federal agencies, the Bureau of Reclamation, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers that were insistent on completing a mission from a different era, from an earlier area in the 20th century that said every watershed in the country had to be developed for industrial use. And really what we're dealing with is the aftermath of the of the the punch, the collision of those two ideologies. Yeah. And we haven't resolved this issue yet. We haven't decided whether we want to thoroughly, you know, the 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 phrase that the Bureau of Reclamation used in the 50s and 60s was total use for greater wealth. Yeah. Right? We need to develop our waterways to make us more money. And the flip side of that is what Senator Frank Church did. is like, no, we don't need to develop all this to make money. We need to set it aside for our children's biological inheritance, right? And so that's, those, that's, those are the two ideologies that have sort of come to crash in the wilderness in Idaho right now. And... Uh, uh, I, I think that's, um, 
you know, the, there's there's isn't a resolution to that in the book that I wrote, but I do believe that's kind of the crux of the issue, not only in Idaho right now, but in this country. Are we going to preserve some measure of the massive biological wealth of this continent for our kids and our grandkids to enjoy? Or are we all going to are we just going to blow it all in this generation? You know, yeah, that's the question. And like what we talked about at the top of the podcast, like it doesn't take long for a river to recover after dams removed. But if we start losing these species like these steelhead or these uh, Chinook salmon or the, you know, they're going to be lost. And the Pacific Northwest, like the Atlantic, the North Atlantic was the Pacific Northwest still currently is a huge production of salmon. Um, Not as big as it used to be. yeah, and, absolutely true. And even compared to the rest of the world, right? Like, I like you know, it still it still holds its own with, um, right. Other, you know, I think Peru has got some salmon and other areas, right. uh, Norway and stuff. Um, right. but if these lower if these lower Snake River dams were removed right away, I think you talked about that there was like two point five x times the amount of salmon production right. in the Snake River. So right. it's like it's very obvious what the problem is. And I know that you were involved right. in the um the documentary escapes me, but it's the, the documentary that was damn to extinction. Yes, exactly. About orcas. Um, yeah. Talking about how the population of these orcas that rely on this Pacific Northwest salmon is not only decreasing, but they're getting much skinnier, much weaker. And they're also just, they're less playful. They're less the way they were. That, that is where time is of the essence, right? Between that, between right. salmon, between just the ecology here alone. Um, we don't yeah, have much I mean, time. Th- you know, and I think this is something um, that film can maybe accomplish that books also can, but it's it's a much slower process. What I learned uh, helping to make that documentary is that those orcas are really a world treasure. People come from all over the place to see these, you know, creatures that have evolved over tens of thousands of years in Puget Sound and the area beyond that known as the Salish Sea. And they evolved that way because they had an abundance of salmon to eat, you know, and they their hunting strategies and, and even the... Uh, language that they use to communicate with each other to hunt these fish all evolved over thousands of years around the presence of of Chinook. And the presence of those fish has declined to the point where the existence of these creatures, which again, you know, think of killer whales this way. They're really the world's largest dolphins. And they're, you know, with a little more exciting colors than your standard dolphin and um you know they're as big as elephants and um with the grace of like a gymnast and we're at risk of losing these animals out of more or less our own kind of greed and ignorance and so um Okay, if if people can live with <laughs> if yeah. people can live with the consequences of that, that's fine. But uh, I think the point of the documentary is to sort of 
let people know that this is this is what the trade-off is right yeah and, and also you... yeah sorry i was gonna say and also just like the the rainforest themselves that are inland being replenished by the nutrients that the salmon gets from back upstream or, or, or sorry yeah. from the ocean itself so like you're seeing these rainforests are, are not as strong. They're not as, um, I know you talked about it a little bit, but like there's less of a replenishment of the nutrients that were being there, lost. Well, yeah, there was a study from the University of Washington that uh, concluded that in the presence of where salmon spawn, coniferous forests along the Pacific coast are three times more productive than in areas wow. where there aren't those fish. So, I mean, yeah, marine-derived nutrients are really powerful fertilizers, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Nitrates, phosphorus, all the things that we put, you know, in artificial ways on in our, our, dust, in our industrial model of agriculture, that's what salmon furnish to those forests. Uh, again, for free. Nobody paid a dime for yeah. it. So, Yeah. Uh, it, it's almost as if nature had its own system before we started messing around with it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so yep. you mentioned also in the book that uh, New Zealand fought for a river's personhood, uh, for the ability for like like how yeah. corporations do in the Americas, right? Uh, is that something we yes. can do in the States as well? Is that something we've tried? I, I love that idea. Yeah, well, it's already being done in the States. It's, okay. it's really interesting. So yeah, there was a court case in New Zealand in 2017 Um where an indigenous people brought a case against uh, the government. And they basically said, you know, it's a very creative legal process. They said, look, the United States established the idea that a corporation can have basically personhood rights, mm -hmm. you know. Well, if a corporation, which is just basically, a, you know, uh, a bunch of legal documents that allows... <laughs> uh, an entity to accumulate money with no consequence, more or less. If that can be a person, then why can't an ecosystem be a person? And uh, the Wanganui Iwi, which is the name of this, these indigenous people in New Zealand, they brought this to the highest court in the land in New Zealand and they prevailed. And so now the Wanganui River, which is uh, their namesake, you know, of their of their people uh, is protected with personhood rights, meaning that the same rights that a corporation has uh, for essentially it all comes under the, you know, uh, right to expression. Uh, those rights are now enjoyed by uh, a watershed. <laughs> Wow. And this this effort, this legal effort has been repeated. It, it's, it's in its sort of nation stages here in the U.S. But, um, you know, it's an interesting legal thought problem. And it'll yeah. be interesting to see how it bears fruit in, into the future. You know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so what what current projects are you working on? What are you most excited about and what? What gives you the most hope, right? We've talked about dams. We've talked about dam removals. What gives you the most hope for the future? Yeah. Well, I'm getting to be older. You know, I'm, uh, I'll am i be 55 here next summer. And I'm, 
I think um, I've kind of moved into more local watershed issues. Um, I grew up fishing this river in central Oregon called the Deschutes. And I remember it being a lot of the magic that I experienced as a kid on rivers was on the Deschutes. And this was a place where you could wake up before dawn and fish for steelhead and then go back to camp and eat breakfast and rig up a trout rod and catch trout all day and then fish for steelhead again in the evening wow. and, and go, go to bed and repeat the whole thing the next day. And, you know, it was, um, I'm not sure what fishing would be like in heaven, but this was pretty close to it. And, uh, <laughs> uh, that all went away uh not and, and unlike a lot of environmental problems that all went away in 2010 because of some changes that were made to the way a dam upstream operated and so what i'm most excited about right now is is trying to get portland general electric the company that owns these dams to, to go back to the way it was before, because it was better before. And it's kind of a weird project for me because it doesn't involve dam removal, at least in the short term, but it sets the stage for that over the long term. And I think when you get to be my age, you start thinking about, all right, not, it's not just about what things are gonna be like for me for the rest of my life, but what are things gonna be like 50 or 100 or 200 years from now. Yeah. And to me, this is, it combines two things. It's a very local project, but it also has those kind of uh, cosmic implications because if we do this right, it will fix a river for a very long time into the future. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That sense of immediacy um, probably rings a lot truer when, when you've been working on things for a while and realize. Yeah. 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 I, how, yeah how, well, we all yeah. want instant gratification, right? Yeah, exactly. Now. Right. <laughs> um, well, bringing it all back together, like, like, how did you get plugged in with Patagonia? Like, again, your book cracked the future of dams in a hot, chaotic world. It's incredible. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to do this podcast to be able to speak with a lot of people who do the Patagonia, who work with Patagonia. Every single yeah. book they do is incredibly beautiful. I think they do it on like archival recycled paper. They're so thorough. But I got to tell you, man, on, I've never learned so much from a book uh, that I was sent uh, as with yours. It was I'd learned so much from it and from this interview. I thought, again, I thought I was pretty well versed in, 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 in conservation and issues that are close to my heart. Yeah. And I, I was so dumb before I picked up this book, probably equally as, as uh, dumb now. Uh, I've got a lot more to learn. But how did you get plugged yeah. in with Patagonia? Uh, to begin with, well, how did that I, start? I wrote another book. Uh, my the first book that I wrote uh, in 2011, which is also about rivers. I <laughs> this is funny. I cold called, or more uh, accurately, cold mailed through the U.S. Postal wow. Service. Yvonne Chenard. I just I wrote to him at Great Pacific Ironworks and wow. said, you know, I'm I'm publishing this book. I know you're a huge advocate for rivers. Uh, would you consider a jacket blurb? And 
not only did Yvonne write a jacket blurb, but they sold that book uh, in all their stores. Yeah. And, or not, I don't know if in all their stores, but in a lot of their stores. And uh, that was the beginning of a beautiful relationship. He's uh, got to be the coolest guy to know. <laughs> he's got to be. He's yeah. got to be awesome. Yeah, he's. I've only met him a few times. He's. Um, he he doesn't like being in the public spotlight, and if you can get him out of the public spotlight, he's one of the funniest people you've ever met. I bet he's a yeah. wonderful sense of humor. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's incredible. Um, well, Stephen, hey, thank you so much for your time. I know we went a little bit over the hour, but I think it was incredible. I loved. Oh, it was totally uh, worth it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like I said. There's so much I, I've I've learned so much from all my guests, but I was blown away about how I'm how much I learned about dams. I'm excited to uh, read your first book. I'm excited to read anything else you you write. Um, and yeah, you know I, I I love the idea of getting involved in the local level because it's I'm so blown away by how many dams there are, even just above 15 feet, let alone below that, and just the huge impact on the environment. So, um, all right. Yeah. So Brian, here's what we need to do. Yeah. We need to we need to figure out since you're in North Carolina and yeah. I haven't spent enough time there. We need to figure out the top five dams in North Carolina that need to come out, and we need to throw that out when we when you throw this uh, when when you throw this podcast up. Yeah, uh, pe- people need to know. I'm I'm sure that there's somebody in North Carolina that knows which dams need to come out this the 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 quickest. So let's. Uh, Let's let's set that bar right now. I love I think, it, man. Uh, I, and I I have a you know I have a blog and I have a website and uh, let's figure out those dams and I'll put it up on my website too and you can put it up on yours and um, people can kind of go from there. Yeah, for sure. Well, go ahead and plug your website. Plug whatever else uh, you're working on, man, because I want to yeah, keep yeah. in touch. My website is just stephenhollyauthor.com. Cool. Some other Stephen Holly. I would just have been stephenholly.com, but. Some other Stephen Hawley uh, bought that uh, domain name. Of course. And uh, there is an an astronaut named Stephen Hawley, but I'm not him. Okay. (laughs) That'd be wild if you were and we didn't talk about any of that. Right. I've been asked that before. (laughs) The same. No, I'm not the astronaut. But uh, yeah. So let's figure out some dams that need to come out of North Carolina and then let's see if we can push that out. You got it. Yeah, I will go ahead and I'll follow up with you on that. And yeah, Stephen, thank you so much for your time and for for your work, your incredible work with dam removal. It was an issue I didn't know how huge it was, and it seems to be like one of the one of the biggest ones that we can all handle together. Uh, not yeah. only in the kind of in the U.S., but across the world. You know, you're in this uh, Grateful Dead cover band. And yeah. just, uh, close things out by singing. Uh, you know. Listen to the river, sing sweet songs to rock, rock my, my soul. soul. Right. There you go. <laughs> and man, I'm Straight here out of it. the Dead catalog. Hell Thanks, yeah. Brian. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.